This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On the program this week, we look at reactions to a plan the government says will future-proof Māori media, one that's been four years in the making so far. Also, a lot of us play Lotto a lot, and we're spending a lot more on it than we used to, but it hasn't had a whole lot of scrutiny on it in the media compared to other forms of gambling until now. Also, we hear praise for our scenery on screen again in the latest Tolkien TV extravaganza. And it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a character in, in, in Tolkien's world, you know. It's number one on the call sheet. But not for much longer. But first, the death of Queen Elizabeth II was, of course, something the media expected and planned for. But the passing of the world's longest-serving monarch upended the media and the audience in a way no other news could. I'm just going to look at another email I just received. If there's any extra there. Uh, no, the Queen has died. And uh, long live the King. Well, that TV reporter was not the only one stumped by the breaking news that Queen Elizabeth II had died. It's no easy thing to say the right things and strike the right tone with the beady eye of a live camera on you. But this was also the single most anticipated and prepared for news event in media history. Obituaries for the Queen had been collected, compiled, composed and updated over many years, the library growing ever larger the longer that she lived, and media around the world had theirs ready to roll on Friday. Here, stuff had special supplements prepared for its papers and even handed them out for free on the streets, while the Herald had a picture-rich one for the weekend, thanking the Queen for everything. And when the news broke soon after 5.45 on Friday... TBNZ crashed out of a Takara de Bulletin and into its prepared announcement by Simon Dello. It is with sadness we inform you of the death of Her Majesty the Queen. Buckingham Palace has just confirmed Queen Elizabeth II has died at the age of 96. That sparse and simple delivery, segueing into sombre music and images, mirrored the BBC's own procedure for what they call a Category A royal death. The idea is to break the news without the usual urgency, but with the greatest possible dignity and solemnity. But plans have changed in more recent times. Set-piece plans for the death of the Queen Mother 25 years ago called for the immediate suspension of most live programming at the BBC and even the commercial broadcasters there agreed to five days without advertising. Entertainment programmes over the following two months at the BBC were to be scrubbed of any royal references or even shelved. Now that plan was wound back after the circumstances of the death of Princess Diana 25 years ago rendered most of that plan redundant that particular night. But the morning after the Queen died last Friday, BBC hosts were back on the air in the UK with the freedom to connect with their audiences like this. When I was watching the news last night, you're immediately reminded of uh, a personal bereavement, and uh, that is upsetting. It's an upsetting thing. So whatever you're feeling today, it's OK to feel those ways. And also, huge respect to everybody who's messaging in who's having to go into work and be normal. Like this person who says, Greg, hi, I'm a student nurse on my way to a placement today. It's going to be very strange to be on a busy ward today. Well, look, we are here. If you need friendly, familiar voices, we'll be with you on Radio 1 throughout the day. DJ Greg James there on BBC Radio 1. 
but what to include and exclude from official obituary tributes is a tricky choice. Public figures are often controversial, and for TVNZ, Nicole Bremner chose not to gloss over some unhappy events, including these. But times were changing while on walkabout in Dunedin in 1981, there was a botched assassination attempt. 17-year-old Christopher Lewis fired a rifle in the vicinity of the Queen. Clearly the Queen had become fair game to anti-royalists and protesters alike. The treaty had for many become a symbol of grievance, not celebration. We have not honoured each other in the promises that we made on this sacred ground. The Queen acknowledging the problems. The treaty has been imperfectly observed. Now, undoubtedly, many people here who were asked about the Queen's death by the media did feel it personally, such as this woman on, appropriately, Queen Street. I felt like my mother had died again, actually. Um, she's, she's been the mother of the UK for such a long time. But it's not just in New Zealand that people were telling reporters things like that. When Reuters asked around in Kingston in Jamaica, which also had the Queen as its head of state, one woman told them this. She's everybody's mother. She's one of the most outstanding persons and women in my lifetime. But soon after that, a younger bloke, running a leaf blower, told Reuters this. Doesn't really mean anything to me. Let's hope. Done with the monarchy, whatever. We, We don't need kings and queens anymore. So the monarchy and the Queen herself meant different things to different people, but in London last Friday night, News Hub's Lisette Raymer was put in the position of speaking for an entire population when she was asked how the British were coping. No one here is ready to forget her, absolutely not. Everyone's still very much mourning and honouring her memory and wanting to cling to it. But that walkabout outside Buckingham Palace today, coupled with the speech this evening, has provided people with a great deal of comfort. In the US, British journalism professor Emily Bell said that she was staggered to see the New York Times going tribute-heavy on Friday for someone else's sovereign and that it had ended up looking like an edition of the Picture Post from 1952. But the New York Times also echoed Emily Bell in calling Queen Elizabeth II a media queen whose life bookended the electronic media era. Her televised coronation was a broadcast landmark, she'd said, while her death was announced via social media by the palace. Now, New Zealanders who were not much invested in the royal family or Queen Elizabeth II's 70 years as monarch would not have been much moved by the wall-to-wall coverage in most of our media from Friday on. One talkback caller asked on Friday if a serving New Zealand Governor-General had died, would the media go as big on that? Fair point. But a change at the top in the UK and in the head of state of 14 other countries, including ours, is certainly a globally significant story and an historic moment, undoubtedly. For a neutral international news agency like Reuters, though, asking the question, how will Queen Elizabeth's reign be remembered, was tricky. Some commentators describe her reign as a golden age, but others say her impact on Britain was less profound, Reuters concluded. And when posing the question, will Britain's monarchy survive the Queen's death, Reuters hedged its bets with, such was the depth of respect for the Queen, the institution looked safe, but what comes next may be less certain. For some people, even far away in New Zealand, it was too soon to be raising any such questions. Though former Prime Minister Jim Bolger willingly told TBNZ this week that he talked about republicanism in depth with the Queen herself in the UK many years ago. And come Saturday morning, a live News Hub Nation special on three talked about all that at some length as well. 
The Minister of Māori Crown Relations, Kelvin Davis, told the programme that now's not the time. Well, I think we should at least wait until after the funeral service, which is 10 days after her passing. Mm. Uh, but there'll be time over the coming weeks and months to uh, have a conversation about what next. But the programme pressed the issue with others. Uh, we'd certainly be getting ahead of ourselves if we started talking about it, but nonetheless, you've posed the question. Uh, we, we as Māori... Certainly here in the Taitukero, hold He Whakaputanga, the Declaration of Independence, 1835, uh, along with Te Tiriti o Waitangi, uh, 1840, really uh, steadfastly. And like I say, the tide will come in and out at Waitangi, but the land will endure, and so will the people. Tightly, we hold Te Tiriti o Waitangi, He Whakaputanga, and what that may mean for a republic or remaining with what we have now. That was Peter Tetepene, chairman of the Waitangi National Trust Board, after which constitutional lawyer Mei Chen told News Hub Nation the change would be much more than just swapping out one head of state for another. And anyway... The reality is that we are effectively a republic. The power comes from the people, and actually we're governed by the government of the day. The the, the question is whether New Zealanders think there's a burning platform. Well, time will tell if there's any public appetite for that here with a monarchy under new management. But soon after that, News Hub Nation moved on from the Queen's death, life and legacy altogether and back to its business as usual of domestic politics and analysis from a politically connected panel of PR professionals. James Shaw is back. They changed the Any surprises? No, all a bit silly. When you think about it, you know. However, one of the political pundits on that programme, Sarah Sparks, also made a good personal point about the Queen. If you think about the context of the institution of monarchy that she had to operate within, and like the everyday person, she has experienced crisis and chaos in her own whānau. More than most, yes. (laughs) And what you can see within her own whānau, very beloved. The new king has also experienced decades of that sort of chaos too, driven by a tabloid-type media much more hostile to him than the Queen, and mostly just for the purpose of their own profits. And the same goes for his siblings and sons and their children and their partners, and they're far less likely now to play ball with the media in the same way as Queen Elizabeth II. So now that Charles is in charge, that's something the media might want to ponder. If you need to lie to your friends and whānau about your gambling, that's a sure sign, all right. No fibs. Tika, not tika, hey. <laughs> that was Nan, the star of a current ad campaign by Tafatu Ora, the national agency managing our health system. And in several short ads and videos, Nan urges whānau to keep things kāpai by looking out for warning signs of problem gambling and one form in particular. Kia again. Here's something to think about. If a good time on the pokies takes the rent money, then that's a pretty clear sign. Sort your priorities, ne? Now, concern about pokies and problem gambling has been heavily reported by the media at times in recent years, 
It even became a political issue a decade ago when a deal was done for more pokies in Sky City's casino to fund Auckland's convention centre. But some forms of gambling get more benign media coverage. For example, last weekend the big lotto Powerball jackpot of $12 million was not struck, but stuff still reported that lotto players from Kumiu and Auckland both won half a million each in first division prize money. The same report also said a winning strike ticket was sold in the Four Square in Dannyburg, and that the Father's Day triple-dip promotion winner from Wellington bought the winning voucher at the New World in Newtown. And there's a big appetite for stories in the media like that about where the lucky punters get the winning tickets. Last week, for example, News Hub published a full table of the stores that sold winning midweek tickets in Whangarei, Whangaparoa, Auckland, Hamilton, Matamata, Cambridge, New Plymouth, Christchurch and Southland. But on RNZ National last Monday morning, Morning Report had a very different story about where lotto tickets get bought and sold. Almost 70% of lotto tickets bought in shops are sold in the poorest communities. An RNZ investigation into the state-owned gambling company shows that its retail sales come disproportionately from areas of high deprivation. RNZ's Guy Nespina also reported that Lotto now accepts it has too many stores in low-income areas and it's closing some down by the end of the year. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But while Lotto happily gives media the names of lucky stores selling winning tickets every week, it wouldn't tell RNZ how much money the biggest-selling stores are turning over. When RNZ checked the locations of the 10 top-selling stores against the National Deprivation Index, the top two were in places ranked decile 8, while Monaco City and Dunedin outlets were in decile 10 zones, and they were in 6th and 7th place respectively. But Lotto's long-serving chief Chris Lyman told Guy and Espiner that Lotto stores more highly concentrated in poorer places didn't necessarily mean people least able to afford it were disproportionately spending in those stores. So the data we've sent you, and I think we were very clear on this because we do use that data, represents where people shop, not where they live. You can't always, and you don't always end up with shops neatly sitting in suburbs. Um, It's more complicated than that. But Sela Hart of the Kopapa Māori Health Agency Hapai Tahaura told RNZ that people in poor communities hoping for a quick way out of poverty are doing too much of this long odds form of gambling. And I just don't think the light has been shined on them, and they've been able to hide in the shadows of pokey machines. It's a good point. Ten years ago, the New Zealand Herald highlighted how pokey machines were concentrated in the poorer parts of Auckland, and an Auckland Council report at the time said that money was being taken out of the communities in which it was generated. The Otago Rugby Union even bought three South Auckland pubs back then to reap the rewards of their pokies. Now, the pub charity organisation at the time warned darkly that charitable donations critical for air rescue to opera were at risk if the numbers of pokies were cut back. And the New Zealand Herald columnist Brian Rudman even suggested a national day of thanks for what he called the modern-day kamikaze New Zealand heroes who ventured out to pubs to fund amateur rugby, ice hockey and arts festivals. Everything from grand opera to girl guides to pony clubs to play centres to women's refuges rely on pub gamblers continuing to feed their hard-earned cash into these bottomless machines. Propping up respectable New Zealand pastimes was protecting the pokey industry from reform, Brian Rudman reckoned back then. But the Herald's reporting at that time also brought to light that less than 40% of gross proceeds ended up with charities. A sinking lid was put on the number of pokies in Auckland after that, and now pokies pull in less of the total gambling take. But Lotto's share of it has surged in that same time, 
from 18% of the total gambling spend in 2010 to 20% of it in 2020. Now, as we're often reminded in Lotto's publicity and adverts, all profits go to what we're told are good causes, sports, the arts, community initiatives, and so on. And arguably this, and the fact that people spend less but more often on Lotto, also means it's had less media scrutiny on the after-effects of that spending in recent years. Until now. In June, the Otago Daily Times revealed Lotto's plans for a third weekly draw and a significant ramping up of its online gaming options, including what it called instant reward games. We are doing a lot of work to understand how big this category could be. We believe it could double what it is today without too much effort. And documents obtained under the OIA by the ODT also showed it was pondering the potential of the metaverse to secure a bigger slice of the easy money in online gambling, which... Lotto says would otherwise go offshore. Now, Lotto's boss Chris Lyman told Guy Nespina the same thing in part two of RNZ's investigation, which came out on Thursday, and revealed that he wants to launch a lucrative online bingo game soon, even though members of the Lotto advisory panel warned against it. Now, because Lotto is a state institution, the Internal Affairs Minister Jan Tanetti has to approve changes like this, having first considered possible harm, which, she told RNZ, is front of mind for her. At the front of my mind all the time is harm minimisation. I've seen too many issues that have happened with gambling. I've seen too many families that have been hurt and harmed. And last Monday, in the first part of his investigation, Guy Nespiner reported that Lotto knew for some time it was causing harm already by having too many stores in poor areas. And... Lotto says it will now close some stores down, with the aim of reducing the ratio of stores per capita in areas of high deprivation to below the national average by the end of the year. Chief Executive Chris Lyman said store numbers would also decrease because of the growth of online sales. So there are stores coming out of uh, wealthy suburbs as well, but more stores will be coming out of vulnerable areas. Well, the end of the year is less than four months away and it's remarkable that that hasn't been made public until this week, especially when you consider those new stories about lucky punters with lucky numbers at the lucky stores that are reported every week. There's more to come about Lotto from Guy Nespina and RNZ next week and the week after. While many New Zealanders' lotto spending helps out good causes, all New Zealanders helped out with the biggest budget TV series ever made by the media company owned by the world's richest person. This week, season one of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, is out for paying subscribers of Amazon Prime, in part thanks to the 25% rebate it secured to make the series here. And last weekend, News Hub Entertainment reporter Kate Roger was on the red carpet at the premiere in LA, asking this... How does it feel to finally, after all that work in New Zealand, be standing on this red carpet in Hollywood about to um, show it to the world? Surreal. My mind's blown, to be quite honest. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm just sometimes pinching myself and poking myself. Can't believe I'm here. It feels entirely surreal. My God, it feels great. Well, you're welcome. But if our scenery is number one, why will series two to six of The Rings of Power be made in the UK and not here? Even though New Zealand gave up an extra 5% incentive on top of the standard rebate for the screen production grant, last year Amazon Prime announced it's moving the whole thing to Britain. And in a statement at the time, Amazon said this. The shift to the UK aligns with the studio's strategy of expanding its production footprint for many of Amazon Studios' tentpole series and films. Well, the local industry had pretty strong feelings back then about what Amazon Prime could do with their tentpole, 
But none of that was mentioned at all by Kate Roger on the red carpet in LA last weekend, alongside stuff like this. There is one person that, that took his love for New Zealand and our Prime Minister that one extra step. My, my dog is called Jacinda. Stop it. Yes. <laughs> Did you name her after Jacinda? Yes. Meanwhile, over on TBNZ's news, another possible uptick in Tolkien tourism was the angle. Yeah, you know, tourism, we needed a bit of a you know, good news story at the moment, and I think these uh, TV series coming out is certainly a bit of a good news and some light at the end of the tunnel for us as well. And with episodes released weekly, this return to Middle-earth has only just begun. Well, actually, the rings of power is all over for us as far as we are concerned. And because TVNZ wasn't in L.A. to ask the stars anything in person, they ended up using handouts of the makers saying nice things about our scenery instead. Producers in these supplied interviews say they were spoilt for choice. It's a real uh, showreel of New Zealand's locations, really. We just offered geographically in a very small in a very small uh, space where, you know, you can be in a, a tropical forest and into the Fiordland within an hour and a half's flight. There's not many places in the world where you can do that. So why then cut and run to the UK where you don't get that? Well, you can't ask when you're using handouts. But you can mention that our scenery won't be seen on screen in the Rings of Power after the series. And for them, it's a case of so long and thanks for all the subsidies. Last Wednesday, the Minister for Māori Development, who's also the Minister for Broadcasting and Media, suddenly announced a new Māori broadcasting strategy to future-proof Māori media. And the timing was a surprise, but it was a long time coming. Almost four years had passed since his predecessor as Māori Development Minister, Nanaia Mahuta, had started the process, after which Willie Jackson scrapped it in 2020 and started again. Now, by that time, the new public media entity replacing RNZ and TVNZ had become the focus of the government's media policy, and the Māori Media Review plodded on in the background. But in response to fears that a beefed-up public media body could push Māori media onto the back burner, Willie Jackson said this on TVNZ's current affairs show Marae back in June. We want to see our people, hear our people in mainstream, uh, and that shouldn't take anything away from what we do in terms of a Māori sense, in terms of Māori TV and Māori radio. This is going to be an and-and, not a public media and see you later Māori broadcasting. I, I'd resign if it, that was the case, because I, I didn't support a public media structure for the death of Māori broadcasting. That's just nonsense. Now, there should be no reason that would happen after the government announced a $40 million investment and a fuller range of Māori content in the budget in May, following on from $42 million pledged the year before. But the actual strategy for Māori broadcasting was still a work in progress. Now this week, Cabinet has agreed a plan outlining the priorities for the Māori media sector and work to do in the next three years, and we'll look at that in a minute. But the strategy itself was presented as part of another one, the Crown's strategy for Māori language revitalisation, Maihi Karauna, which has a goal of one million New Zealanders speaking basic te reo Māori by 2040, and which also says Māori media play a vital role in normalising and revitalising it. Quality Māori content available to all New Zealanders in both te reo Māori and English is essential, Willie Jackson said on Wednesday. So will this then mean a radical shake-up of existing Māori media to do this? Well, it seems not. When the Māori Media Sector Shift Review got underway back in 2018, it initially suggested a one-stop shop for Māori news content and Fakata Māori, Māori television, becoming a single centre of excellence for journalism and training. When the review restarted, 
other bold ideas were canvassed too. One advisor on the strategy, Pango Productions founder Bailey Mackey, even proposed scrapping Māori television as we know it. But there's nothing so bold in the Cabinet plan that was released this week. About an hour after that emerged, TVNZ's Māori Issues reporter Tianiwa Hurihanganui told One News viewers this. Broadcasting Minister Willie Jackson is looking to create a new funding agency for Māori journalism and Māori content in English. That means more Māori stories covered by mainstream media. He did reinforce his support for existing Māori language programming though. He said they will not be going anywhere under this new strategy and the new funding agency will not uh, dip into their funding. And shortly after that, Willie Jackson told Radio Wātea a station Willie Jackson himself managed just a few years ago, funding Māori programmes in English like this was unprecedented. People don't know this, but the Māori programmes on Māori TV and other areas are all funded by language, Māori language money. That shouldn't be the That's case. Right. They should have their own pūtia bro, and, and Māori language should be, funding should be for Māori language funding. And so I'm opening up a new, new way here and so that we can fund Māori stories, Māori news in English. But when asked by Wātea's host Shane Thapo how all these programmes actually end up on English language media outlets, the minister said this. We'll ensure through the charter uh, obligations in the main entity that they're, they're, they won't be able to avoid um, uh, the, the Māori broadcasting perspectives in the, in the mainstream entity. So, so we've got to get our stories played. We've got to be seen. We've got to be heard. And so we have to ensure that uh, we have to ensure our voices heard uh, across in the main entity by entrenching that and enshrining that in the charter that's set up. Now, under this new strategy, Fakata Māori, Māori Television, will be directly funded by the government rather than via the Māori Development Ministry, Tipuni Kōkiri, and that pleased the current Māori Television Chief Executive, Shane Tauruma, when he spoke to Radio Wātea the same day. That is one of the uh, changes, which is good. It's something that we have been asking for for some time because uh, the way in which we're currently funded is that we receive some funding uh, via uh, Te Māngai Pāho and some funding via TPK. And it's, it's always a challenge uh, when you're having to serve two masters. By having one, uh, it will certainly make things much easier for us but when Shane Todama was asked if making more programmes in English for wider media might compromise Māori media outlets' autonomy, or that they might even end up subsumed into mainstream media over time, Shane Todama responded like this. Well, we must resist any attempt for that to take place. And I'm heartened by the comments that I've heard from the Minister when he outrightly rejects that notion. Uh, if it's good enough for non-Māori uh, to have a range of different uh, media organisations, then it's good enough for us to absolutely have the same. Last Wednesday on TVNZ's One News, the Māori Issues reporter Tianiwa Hurehanganui summed up like this. The people I've spoken to in the last hour or so are feeling quite underwhelmed by the Minister's uh, comments at this stage. Uh, after nearly four years, we still have no funding announcement. But definitely underwhelmed was News Talk ZB's Kate Hawksby, who at the same time overreacted like this, but for rather different reasons. And here's where you start to panic, because where does he want it to go? He wants a million Kiwis speaking to Rayo by 2040, uh, a new funding agency for Māori journalism, more Māori in mainstream media. How much more do you want? We are dripping in it. Come on, we've never had more. ZB's Kate Hawksby reckoned that the Cabinet had got the wrong priorities. 
we are run on the smell of an oily rag. Show me a media organisation that's got enough resources to do its job properly. None of us. We're all scrambling around doing about 10 jobs at once because we're nobody's got enough resource. Um, it would be great if the media was more diverse. doesn't have to be just surely more Māori. It would be great if the media was more interesting. I mean, come on. There are so many other ways you could improve the media than by just making it more Māori. And Kate Hawkesby went on to say that while most mainstream media seemed uninterested in this development, it would, in time, be controversial for this reason. And when it does come around next year, and suddenly there's largely te reo being spoken at you on every orifice of every media outlet, then you'll just remember back to this moment where I told you about it in advance. And it remains to be seen who really shares her alarm about more Māori media in future. Now, the Broadcasting Minister claimed that this new strategy would make more Māori media compatible with the new public media entity, as well as more free to concentrate on creating content. But when Willie Jackson appeared on RNZ's Morning Report on Thursday, he was asked if this new strategy amounted to not much more at this point than just adding to and shifting around the public money that's already going to Māori media entities. It's more efficient for them in terms of... Of, of, of what they do. Sometimes they're, they're trying to, you know, they go through a process. Sometimes um, the funding is, is up for tender. They, they have to go through a, through this sort of long-winded process. And what they want and what they've said to us is uh, they need some uh, consolidation and they want to concentrate on content. So, so this was one of their big asks. And so I'm, I'm pleased that the panel who recommended that, um, uh, uh, that, that we as a cabinet have supported it. But what is it then that the Cabinet has actually signed off this week? Does it really map out a future-proof Māori media sector beyond the next three years? Well, the Cabinet paper does not propose any significant structural changes. Rather, it aims to stabilise existing entities in the expectation of more efficiency and improved performance. The Broadcasting Act and the Māori Television Service Act, Te Aratuku Whakata Irirangi Māori, will probably need to be amended to make this possible. And the Cabinet paper says Māori Media will need more funding to engage meaningfully with the new public media system the government's also creating right now. And it will need to employ and retain more people to make that content, especially talented te reo speakers. However, the existing ministries, Tapuni Kōkari and the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, will still have oversight of the sector, and the existing funding agencies, Tamangai Paho and New Zealand On Air, will still both allocate funding to Māori media content as they do now. But all of these are expected to have a shared strategy for commissioning content and distributing it across the media. And while that doesn't really look much more efficient or streamlined on the face of it, the Cabinet paper raises the possibility of a single Māori and public media platform in the future. Now, words like flexibility and collaboration appear a lot in the 15-page paper, and frameworks, structures and the removal of barriers to innovation also crop up. But while the content to be created and distributed is mentioned a lot, it's not defined anywhere, merely described as high quality, and that it needs to be accessible on the devices of the audience's choosing. So how will success be measured? Well, no targets or specific requirements for any broadcaster or platform are specified yet. But the level of national engagement with te reo Māori will be measured as part of the wider Mahi Karona goals. So what then will happen next? Well, the next step in this strategy is a programme of work to establish new ones, 
The plan calls for objectives and responsibilities to be set by the end of this year and then a shared Māori content strategy to be running by mid-2023 and then Cabinet to report back on a platform and distribution strategy by June 2024. So for now then, it's a case of watch this space, which many in the Māori media sector have been watching intently since the search for a strategy began way back in 2018. Last weekend, a TVNZ Sunday show expose on emergency housing lifted the lid on life in motels in Rotorua. I'm scared of visions, yeah. <laughs> Why are you scared of them? Because the attitude that they give when they knock at my door, um, they stand over me a lot. Um, they lie, they like tell me things that I've did, but I didn't do that. And I'm just tired because I'm getting pushed out of my house and there's nowhere for me to go. And on Midweek Media Watch this week, talking to Brian Crump on Nights, Hayden Donnell took a look at the eye-opening scenes and stories that made news on other media too. They also talked about the Herald setting the record straight on a headline-making lockdown breach earlier this year and some big news involving Brian himself, his shift to RNZ Concert and Karen Hay taking over soon on nights. And they also talked about a claim in last weekend's Media Watch, which Hayden reckoned ended up a little wide of the mark. Those of you who are listening to this show, RNZ's Media Watch on Sunday, would have heard a segment on the government's back down over putting GST on KiwiSaver fund fees. And in that package, the presenter Colin Peacock said this. Interesting questions there, but not ones discussed in the media after the proposed change to KiwiSaver was so swiftly struck down by the government responding to the backlash. Now that's Colin Peacock. He's basically saying that when the government backtracked on its decision to uh, implement GST on KiwiSaver fund fees, that killed the media discussion. He said that the media headline, Gone by Lunchtime, which was applied to the government's tax changes, could have been applied to the media coverage as well. And that statement, while very pithy, has proved completely false in the last few days. So there has actually been quite a bit of continuing discussion about what to do with this tax loophole. You can hear that, if you really must, in this week's Midweek Media Watch. It's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed, preserved forevermore and available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, though we'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.